thanks again for joining us. Um, we have uh, Dr. Hudson Garrett Jr. here that's going to be uh, discussing COVID-19 with us uh, from an EMS perspective. I think that's, we've seen a lot of misinformation and completely wrong information about COVID-19 in the last um, couple weeks. And it's obviously going to impact our careers, into impact our education on uh, public health. And so um, Hudson actually reached out to me and asked if we wanted him to come on and, and discuss this. And I couldn't think of a better person to come on and, and discuss it from a very uh, logistical and very cited review of it and understanding of it and very accurate and factual from an EMS standpoint. And so that's, uh, that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to field your questions after as well. So don't feel like you can't ask questions. I'll be keeping an eye on both Zoom and Facebook. And then we'll, at the appropriate times, I'll, uh, I'll kind of interject um, and so that way we can uh, we can ask those questions to the expert and, and get those questions that you have answered. And so without further ado, I'll, I'll hand the floor over to uh, to Dr. Hudson Garrett and we will uh, we'll chat about the COVID-19 or coronavirus, whichever lingo you're using right now to de, uh, to identify it. But uh, yeah, please feel free to introduce yourselves in case someone no one saw you on the uh, or these, some of the people that didn't see you on the sepsis one we did it a few months ago. And uh, that way we can uh, get you all introduced and get everyone on the factual lines of, of COVID-19. Awesome. Well, thanks very much and good afternoon or good morning to you wherever you are in the world. Um, I think it's a really exciting time to focus on really what the facts are, uh, what the truth is, and what we can do to protect ourselves as well as our families. And so this webinar is not going to talk about toilet paper. It's not going to talk about dog food or any of the craziness going on, but really look at some of the things that we can do in the pre-hospital environment. Um, so as he mentioned, my name's Hudson Garrett. I'm uh, a president and CEO of Community Health and Associates, which is a consulting firm for healthcare. Uh, but I'm also an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Louisville School of Medicine. So, and I work in EMS as well, part-time. Worked actually yesterday, we were chatting a little bit about some of the hysteria out there, especially with long-term care residents, which is just uh, something that we'll talk about here today. Mm -hmm. We'll go roll on to the next slide. Um, and, and I really want to start off with, remember that we want to go to our local public health authorities for the most up-to-date information. I can't stress this enough. Public health is our friend. Um, they have tremendous resources and unfortunately have a huge task ahead of them. Um, much of the information that's pulled today is pulled from the CDC and the World Health Organization to make sure that it's going to be the most accurate thing that we can present. But you can always look out with your or work out um, details with your local public health authorities. So as far as the objectives for today, um, if we move on to the next slide, <clears throat> I, I've got some pretty simple things I want to go over. One is, where are we today? Um, so if we can go to the next slide as well. Um, where are we today with the outbreak and where do we anticipate going? Um, what are some of the things that are actually truly rooted in evidence? I think this could not be underplayed enough. I mean, we, we, we really have to focus on what makes sense, what can be actually be implemented in the pre-hospital environment, and then finally, what are some common sense things that we should be doing in general to maintain the clinical continuity of care in pre-hospital settings? So if we move to the next slide, I, I sort of bold this down into something a little bit more personal. Um, and when we think about this, I want to make sure you're safe. I want to make sure your patients are safe. And I want to make sure that everything that we're doing is really completely rational and pragmatic. If we don't act in these sort of, um, uh, you know, facets, we're, we're going to be sort of succumbing to the hysteria that's out there. Just yesterday, I, I had a patient um, that was a, a potential positive for COVID-19. And it was just amazing to see the reaction of the hospital, or should I say the lack of reaction. 
um, when we called on the report, brought the patient in, uh, lack of isolation capabilities, just the whole thing sort of fell apart, regardless of the fact that they were communicated to 20 minutes ahead of time that this patient met criteria for screening. So if we go to the next slide, um, <clears throat> you know, how can we really think about this in a broader context and look at whether you're in Canada, the US, Mexico, and Europe, you know, Europe is being particularly hard, but all of our federal agencies have sort of a core set of responsibilities. They've got to stop the outbreak, right? They've got to make sure that they're protecting healthcare personnel with guidance that can actually be implemented. Um, right now, if you were to say everyone needs to use a respirator mask, an N95 respirator mask, there simply aren't enough. And so that guidance doesn't really hold true for pre-hospital professionals. Uh, just yesterday, my, uh, my partner that I was working with was not properly fitted with an N95 mask. She had never been given one that actually fit her face. And so that was a problem that we had to sort of do a little work around to make sure that we had proper ventilation. She had to drive. We had to shut things down. Um, so these are all things that we want to think about in the context of reducing mortality and morbidity. If we go to the next slide. So how do we get there? How do we actually start? Well, we want to look at sort of that pathophys of COVID-19. It's a form of coronavirus, which is a form of SARS. The general infectivity is really low. Um, and so it's not to say by any means that we want to discount the many, many thousands of people that have been infected. What we're simply trying to say is that the, the sort of rate of infection or the rate of attack is pretty low. Um, we also understand that patients that have comorbidities are going to be at increased risk. And so rather than talk about general terms, I'm actually going to give you data by comorbidity that I think helps us as pre-hospital professionals say, what's my true risk to my patient? What are the things that I want to be aware of? And how do I make sure that as an exposed healthcare worker, I can really manage my potential risk as well? You know, when we think about Ebola, um, you know, that's something that was a little bit easier because we had specific geographies that were impacted. With unfortunately COVID-19, that's not necessarily the case. Um, and as you've seen probably for those of you in the US with what President Trump has, has stopped as far as international travel from Europe, there's some continued expectations of safety that have not yet been met in sort of the air, air industry that we've got to think about. If we right. go to the next slide. <clears throat> so the current status, um, this was data as of 311 and this is specific to the US. Um, I actually left this slide on there because every day this changes, um, and it sometimes changes several times a day, <clears throat> but we're not only looking at the total number of cases globally, but we're also looking at what's sort of that, that death rate. And on the next slide that we'll move to, you'll get a better idea of what that is as of today at 12 o'clock. So as of 12, I ran this report, and this is a phenomenal, phenomenal system if you haven't seen it before. But you can go to John Hopkins, um, and you can just honestly type in Hopkins COVID on any search engine, and it'll pop right up. And on the left, it's going to give you your total number of confirmed cases. And then below that, you'll see that it actually does it by country. So not only can you search by country, but if you're, for example, in Canada and you're a specific province, um, or if you're in a specific state in the United States, you can zoom down <clears throat> to that local geography. And it's really helpful because it tells you the total number of confirmed cases. It also gives you the total number of cases under investigation that are still pending results. And it also unfortunately tells you the death rate. On the right side, you'll see the total number of deaths as well. And so again, that hyperlink is included that I know he's gonna post in the, in the portal after today's webinar. And you can always go and view that, that is real time. So whereas CDC typically updates at 12 and five, uh, this is actually updated in real time as data becomes available from countries that are reporting. So next slide, please. 
<clears throat> so the clinical presentation is, is one that, you know, can be a little bit difficult for differential. And what I really love about Mastery Medics is it focuses so much on the why. Um, and that's why I think understanding how are these patients going to present to us as pre-hospital professionals, and then how are we going to transition them, their care in the hospital environment when we have a differential that's sort of this, this wide with fever and cough and shortness of breath. So yesterday, for example, I had a patient that was elderly, was in a personal care home, um, had no fever, but had a cough and shortness of breath. And so, you know, this is somebody that definitely met criteria, definitely had had visitors. Um, and so when we called the, the emergency department to let them know of our arrival, there was a very, um, let's just say, lackadaisical reaction to this. And so we want to ensure that not only do we communicate these facts, but more importantly, we immediately institute respiratory precautions for ourselves as well as for the patient. Uh, this particular patient, you know, the recommendation is to mask the patient, which we'll go through here in a minute. This patient can tolerate that. She was also on nasal cannula uh, for O2, and she was having a lot of respiratory secretions and coughing. And so it's something that we want to think about carefully, but more importantly, what else could this be? Um, and we're sort of in that heightened period of time where this could be COVID, but look at the total picture of our patient. Uh, next slide, please. You might have asked a quick question here. Yeah, of course. Um, so as far as the, the, the cough itself. So I've heard, I've had a couple different, um, I guess, presentations with this. And so as far as the cough, are we expecting a productive cough or is it no. more of a dry cough? Nope. So typically you're going to see dry cough is more prevalent. Um, a productive cough with sputum is actually a less common symptom. Right. That's what I was, okay. And same with sinitis and runny nose, those kind of things. Those cold presentations are not really usually associated with COVID. Is that correct? That is correct. And, you know, think about also seasonal allergies is a question I've gotten a lot over the last week. So, you know, if I've got somebody who's got seasonal um, rhinitis or something like that, they're not going to present with a fever. Right. And so, you know, I, I know at least for our EMS agency, we're pretty bad about getting temperatures on every single patient. Sure and, and to me, I, I think that has to become that vital. It has to become a standard vital sign. So when we think about lessons yeah. learned from this, you know, for purposes of sepsis, like we talked about in our last program, for purposes of respiratory illness, let's just go ahead and get, um, you know, a thermometer on every single truck here where I live. Unfortunately, having a thermometer on the truck is not required by a regulatory agency, which is a little problematic. Yeah, that's, yeah, I think that's a really big piece is that if you're, if you're thinking it, like you're just like you're putting on SBO2, if you're putting on SBO2, make a habit of checking the temperature at the same moment. I mean, that's going to be really key, especially with stopping the spread, protecting yourself. And if you catch that, then it's something that raises that red flag for not only yourself and protecting yourself, but also for the hospital. So you're not putting them in a position where they could spread it to other people that are, are quite sick that um, may be at the hospital that not because of this respiratory illness, but all, but because of something else that they have going on, which is extremely dangerous to them. Right. So, um, so that's a really big piece that I'm trying to get out there is that this, a lot of people are saying that I have a runny nose. Do I have the coronavirus? And that runny nose only happens, I believe from the last statistic that I saw was about only 5%. And usually exactly. it was because of some other uh, symptom that was going on or problem that was going on because of it. So that's a, that's a big piece. And the dry coughs, so you're looking more at like ARDS presentations as opposed to something that's pneumonia presentation. Would that be fairly accurate? And is where we're seeing destruction of that. Um, that ability to create fluid in our lungs or is that, um, is it just so, the pathology? Yeah. So the majority of people that have been hospitalized globally have had a chief complaint of pneumonia. 
Okay. So um, that combined with an arts presentation, absolutely. So, you know, yeah. and, and think about too our communication to the emergency department. So yesterday we took a second patient who was unfortunately rule out tuberculosis um, with a couple other issues. And I called report and I said, I need an airborne isolation. So I tried a different strategy at the same hospital. And I walked in the door and I was immediately taken to airborne isolation versus the patient before who also met criteria for that. They completely ignored because they had 100 people in their waiting room with COVID-like symptoms. So, right. you know, the resiliency factor too for us as pre-hospital professionals, we've got to think about that, you know, with PPE and frankly, we don't want to become desensitized to the risk, but we also want to make sure we react appropriately based on what's being presented to us in that clinical setting. Sure. Can I ask you one more question before yeah. we move to the next one is, let's say I, I, another big thing that people are being asked, especially with first responders going to these, going to houses and people asking for antibiotics and treatment, uh, what is a phrase or something that they can use to kind of explain this to those patients that antibiotics are not going to be effective in this particular situation? Is there something they can use or a tip they can have from you that, uh, that you use? So I, especially for our older population, they're pretty much always going to have a comorbidity and they may have, you know, sort of polypharmacy, if you will. Yeah. And so I always talk about medication interactions because I found that many older people are worried about that. Mm -hmm. And so if we speak in terms that are relatable to them, that they're worried about, hey, I don't want that to interact with my Coumadin or whatever it is, that seems to work well. And then also just something as basic as, as antibiotics don't kill viruses. Um, and they can actually make you sicker. And so, you know, especially with the antibiotic shortage that we're having right now with suppliers coming out of China, we would need to be yeah. really judicious about this um, as well. And I found that that works pretty well. Yeah. Um, the other thing EMS providers could actually do is have a fact sheet that they carry on the truck that they can leave behind, especially for patients that don't meet criteria for transport, that really summarizes some of that basic information in, in layman terms. Um, and I think that that's a helpful thing, especially for community paramedicine, where you do have more of that, that sort of intimate relationship with those patients. You can be that source of reason um, versus them having to come into urgent cares and other environments. I think that's really key is that if they don't meet that criteria and they're better off at home, it's giving them the knowledge and the information they need. I mean, we're going to be really working in the public sector uh, of this as opposed to healthcare practitioners for the most part, I would say, I think that's really, really important piece is knowing how to approach it uh, for these people that don't need to be transported in order to protect them. And um, yeah, so I think I, an info sheet to be able to hand out would be really keen, especially in this time where everyone just doesn't know what's going on, doesn't understand right. what is needed in this particular case and what the safest place is for them and their family. Yeah, definitely. And I'm going to be sharing, um, you know, obviously for you to post in the portal, a little ebook that's got a poster in there that's pre-built from CDC. That's one page and it's very pictorial and it's great for the public. So if you mm -hmm. are interested in using that for anybody that's joining today, you're more than welcome to go ahead and just print that off and make those available to the public. Definitely. Great. Okay. Now I'll let you change slides. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Go ahead. Um, so as far as the, the sort of continued conversation about the clinical presentation, the incubation time period is estimated to be about four days. That being said, people are asking all the time, and rightfully so, why are we quarantining people for 14 days? And the reason being is that since this is sort of very similar to the MERS and CARS or, or SARS incident that we had, we're going out to 14 days out of an abundance of caution to completely cover the potential longest incubation time period. Um, so as you sort of mentioned there just a second ago, you know, cough with sputum production is actually a less common symptom. 
Whereas we're going to have, you know, sort of these signs and symptoms of shortness of breath and cough and fever and malaise and fatigue as our most common presenting symptoms for these patients. So again, think about travel history. Um, is this someone who is in a personal care home or a nursing home? Is this somebody that's recently been air traveling via air? Um, all of those things are questions that we want to ask in general to sort of get a positive travel history and then look at their signs and symptoms. Next slide. A question that was asked on Zoom was yeah. how, um, I guess I'll back up for a second because more is pertaining to this slide. Um, how dangerous is this compared to the flu? Maybe you answer this a little bit later on, but is there is there something that you are can kind of compare that to or the percentages that we know of you know, how serious this is compared to the flu in particular? Yeah, so if you look at what NIH has put out there, it's about 10 times as dangerous as the flu. Um, and so, you know, influenza, while a similar route of transmission is not going to be airborne at all, um, with aerosol generating procedures, such as if you're doing a NEP treatment, intubation, anything like that, um, then there's going to be a higher risk for that. But as of right now, they're, you know, sort of estimating that it's about 10 times uh, more risky than the typical influenza. Got it. So again, still pretty low rates, but again, no one has a vaccine, no one has immunity. It's a very different dynamic than what we're facing and sort of that widespread community um, transmission is what's got people up in arms, especially in some of the hot spots, like right outside of New York City and in Washington State and places like that. So mm -hmm. I, I'm not at all up worried about this as an individual with, with knowledge. What I'm worried about is people's reaction to it and how we can honestly go back to the basics of good infection control because it's not about COVID, it's not about Ebola or, SIR, or SARS or MERS, it's really about what do we do every single time we interact with a patient that yeah. presents with that potential infectious etiology. That's, that's yeah. really what we're trying to get to. Consistency is what's really gonna create uh, or you know, be, create some success out of this for sure. And I believe from what I understand, the, the infectivity percentage is every person on average will between two and 2.7, is that correct? On how often, how many people do infect if they're infected? That, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, a big part of de decreasing that is what we do as, as individuals and infection control, not going into public places, identifying these certain things. We do have some control over that infectivity number, and that could really slow the overwhelm that we have in hospitals, which is really the key piece right now. Well, and think about sort of the diversion um, sort of criteria. Does this person need to go to an acute care facility? Can they go to urgent care? Can we quarantine them at home and have local public health follow-up? These are all questions. I mean, one of the patients yesterday that we took to the hospital, her daughter specifically said, please don't take her to the hospital because I'm worried she'll get sicker, hmm. right? And that's totally a reasonable expectation. And lo and behold, we sat there holding the wall for over an hour waiting for a room. And so I think we want to be very careful about how we approach these patients and hopefully have good physician collaboration so that these medical directors will say, you know, let's divert these people to other care environments where the care is going to be quicker, it's going to be safer and less risky, and we can get them back in a home environment with appropriate isolation if needed. Yeah, exactly. I think that's really, really key in this. I mean, yeah, as far as being home, that might be the best option for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because the number of people, and we'll go through this here in this next slide that's going to come up, it's, you know, the people that are going to die from this are typically those that have significant comorbidities. Mm -hmm. And so I, I want to start with China. So we put this in perspective. The case fatality proportion in China was up to 49%. That's alarming, right? That's hugely alarming. But if we think about just 
the U.S., if you had no comorbidities, it was 0.9%. Yeah. So that's a huge market difference. But if I add in diabetes or COPD or hypertension or someone who's immunocompromised, then of course my, my risk goes up. Um, and those that then develop ARDS and other things, those are the patients we've got to worry about from a pre-hospital standpoint. So, you know, think about where you're taking these patients out of. If you're doing an inter-facility transport, your risk may be higher um, if that person's already on a vent. Um, patients that are on ECMO and some of these other things, these are all patients that are hugely high risk that we've got to think about, but it needs to be rooted in data. Um, and so I haven't seen, unfortunately, a lot of conversation that was rooted in this type of stuff on the news media. And so the public is not understanding that these high-risk patients are those that are already high-risk for many, many different things. They're just unfortunately getting exposed to COVID. Yeah, that's, that's the big piece that I, one of the big pieces I want people to take from today is that those numbers that they're seeing, those death rates, they're just, they're only numbers with a lot of context that's not being told behind the story. And, um, and that's, that's a big thing that I'm glad that you touched on that because that is a big piece that we should be mentioning is that that death rate, even though that's, it may seem like a higher percentage, it might seem like the severity of it is 10 times the flu. And I'm not trying to downplay COVID in any way, but it is, um, those death rates are from people that have other comorbidities, like you said, which is a really key piece. Um, especially when we're bringing people to hospitals, even without COVID and, um, and, knowing that we're going to be exposing them or potentially exposing them to this. Yeah, no, I agree. And again, we want to think about getting a better history and physical in general for these patients. Um, if they're afebrile and they have a chronic respiratory disease and it's COPD and they're presenting with the sniffles, that's totally different than if they've got a fever, they've got a, a cough um, and they're short of breath. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we want to put that complete clinical picture together to say, is this person really at, at significant risk? You know, if they're coming out of a nursing home, that's a totally different risk factor um, yeah. in my mind. So we also, always also want to look at sort of the setting by which we're coming into contact with them. Right, exactly. Um, if we move to the next slide. So as far as hospitalizations, I already hit on this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but pneumonia, pneumonia, pneumonia. Um, and so when we think about this, particularly, we're, we're dealing with patients that are going to have, again, those chronic respiratory issues. Um, ARDS is going to develop in a lot of these patients. And we'll talk for a second um, in just a, a few slides, I believe, on corticosteroid use. And there's some interesting findings related to that with COVID-19 um, infection and, and specifically viral replication. So we'll move to the next slide. So diagnostic testing is, is a very, very controversial topic right now. Uh, for those of, uh, of us in the U.S., this is extremely political and charged right now. There is a wide availability of PCR testing. Um, there are some sort of logistical challenges. I sort of call this the beginning of Amazon effect, where public health is now having to commercialize, distribute, uh, organize, and, and do a massive amount of testing that they're not necessarily set up very well for. Um, and so I, I'm glad to see that there's more public-private partnerships so that we can develop the science, but then make sure it can be logistically distributed to the people that need it. Um, and so there's a combination of global and, and, and federal health authorities um, that have already got this testing available. But now we're looking at how can we drive this down in the private laboratory space? And frankly, can this become a point of care test for use in pre-hospital settings, mm -hmm. which I'm a huge fan of? I mean, I love the thought of having like an ISTAT or something like that why not go ahead and add some of these point of care testing things like influenza or coronavirus so that we can more rapidly get these people the necessary treatment. And that could potentially be done via telemedicine. 
um, yep. consultation and we can keep these folks out of the EDs and safer in their homes. Yeah, that'd be really key. I would I, I think that's a really big piece. I mean, if, if we're able to do these testings outside of hospitals, and then again, like you said, do telehealth, uh, that could make the world a difference in stopping that spread and keeping people where they need to be and which is in the homes, right? So um, I think that uh, that could be a really key piece. And hopefully we do get there. Uh, maybe not for COVID, because it's just kind of it's hard to do in these kind of situations, but for future things, because this won't be the last one, obviously. And, uh, but for the future situations, that should be something that we definitely could be doing um, in order to stop that spread and keeping people at home where they should be uh, in these types of situations. Yeah, it, and every outbreak is an opportunity for future preparedness is sort of the way my mind works. And, and, and if we don't learn something from COVID and we don't learn something from Ebola and everything else, then we're crazy, right? Mm -hmm. We need to use this as sort of a preparation mechanism to say, okay, what am I gonna do when the big one hits? And what do I need to know as a EMS professional Right, because we are pre-hospital EMS professionals and we're an integrated part of that healthcare delivery network and quite frankly, the most exposed. Um, and so when we think about PPE recommendations, it's fine and dandy to say, put the patient in an isolation room. Well, that doesn't work on the back of a truck. Yeah. So those, those adaptations to the guidelines have to be really um, well done. And I, I really wanna commend CDC for actually thinking about that and saying, okay, what do we need to do if that's EMS specific mm -hmm. so that we can actually you know, provide these providers with the necessary tools and equipment to be safe. Yeah, that was a really smart thought because I mean, it's not only are we very dangerous carriers, but also like, yeah, it's gonna be constant exposure for quite some time for sure. Yep, definitely. So if we move to the next slide. Yep. Um, the case presentation is we're looking at close contact. So we wanna make sure that if at all possible, we're working in well-ventilated situations. I'm, I'm sort of sarcastically laughing because at the back of a truck is not the most well-ventilated. Cut the exam, uh, or, I'm sorry, the exhaust fan on. Make sure you've got fresh air coming in. Um, you could have the driver open windows so that you've got as much fresh air as possible. But close contact is being defined as six feet of, of sort of separation, if you will, for a prolonged period of time. So if you're, if you're that close to somebody or if you have direct contact with body fluids that are not yours, then this is what's defined as a close contact. Um, and there are different ways to view this sort of isolation and quarantine. One of the things in the ebook that I've listed is the current guidance for EMS. Um, I hope, hopefully that will be very helpful to everybody to say, okay, let's be very rational about this. Do we really need to quarantine our crews? Do we not? Did they appropriately wear PPE? Did they not? These are all things that make a big difference or They've now got a great chart, which is also included in the ebook that says, hey, I didn't have my mask on or I didn't have my eye protection on. Um, what is my true risk? And then what is the, the sort of need to know regarding that level of exposure? So previously it had always been wear PPE or don't wear PPE. Now they've gotten down to the level of granularity to say, if I walked into a scene and maybe I wasn't advised by dispatch that that was a high risk patient and I walked in with just gloves, what's my risk? So I, I'm really excited to see that level of granularity so that we can make better decisions for our cruise protection. Definitely. Really, really important. Because I mean, how often does that happen? I'm sure that our dispatchers are getting specific questions to be asking in order to kind of identify the higher risk patients. But I mean, they're obviously going to be ones that are going to go through the cracks, right? So I think that'll be really, really key in make, keeping people's concern down, but also how long do we need to quarantine these practitioners and those types of things as well and what their risk actually is. 
Yeah, and I, I can only speak for uh, emergency medical dispatch systems here in the US, but I know both Priority Dispatch as well as APCO have released call screening questions that should be asked by dispatchers from an EMD perspective mm -hmm. to really screen this. And that should be relayed to us. Um, I, I actually had that happen yesterday. They unfortunately didn't ask all the questions, um, but it's, it's a start and we wanna make sure that's sort of hardwired in. And again, none of this should go away when COVID leaves sort of our radar. It should really stay there to say, okay, what do we need to do again to make sure anytime we're rolling into a scene that our scene is truly safe. And that includes making sure we have the appropriate PP on before we enter. Yeah, definitely. Next one. Yep. Uh, as far as routes of transmission, we've talked about um, contact with six feet. We're really looking at mucosal contact. So if we've got our, our eyes, our mouth, our nose, the other one that's huge, and I'm going to give specific guidance on this here in a second, is environmental transmission, right? So when we think about all of the surfaces and the nooks and the crannies and the pieces of equipment we have in the back of the truck, it's not just about contact with us, but it's also about how can we prevent community spread um, and this is also true for sepsis. You know, when if we're not, uh, unfortunately, I saw yesterday a crew, um, not one of ours, that actually was reusing sheets all day long um, on the stretcher. And to say that I had a small conniption is an understatement um, <laughs> because th these are such basic infection control practices that are so necessary for, for safe patient contact. So if we move to the next slide. There's a question here that uh, Charles has, and it is, is it true that N95 mask does nothing to help with prevention and I can kind of quickly jump. I think the answer to that is, is that it really depends on if you've had that mask fitted to you and if it's the correct mask. And so I think that's the big problem right now is that yes, it can reduce your risk or reduce transmission. However, it needs to be the correct mask fitted properly uh, or else it's gonna do very little for you. Would that be a correct statement? Yeah, yeah, and I mean, go back to TB, right? We've had TB around for many, many years, and the only healthcare worker transmission of TB when people were using N95 was when people were not using a properly fit tested mask. There you go. Yeah. So, you know, you're, you're totally right. I mean, if we, if we have PPE, it's no different than if I'm an extra large in a glove and I wear a small. Am I really getting that protection, and is that PPE going to function as it was designed and tested? Yeah. Um, so we, we got to be totally common sense about this and make sure that if we are using a mask that we are fit tested. And honestly, that's probably the biggest single risk, I think, related to PPE, um, specifically respiratory PPE and EMS, because we are not seeing a lot of agencies properly fit test like they do in a hospital. Right. Yeah, we're seeing people get right like we're doing fit testing through school and stuff like that up here in Canada as well as we'll get fit, te fit tested again probably if, if we're expired before we can actually use the mask and those kind of things so we're getting we're pushing that right now but I think that's really key is that it's better to do it and have it regulated before these types of things happen um, but yeah that's what we're seeing is that if it's unfitted just like you said uh, then those are the ones that are going to transmit for sure. And so that's, that's, yeah, that's a great answer to your Charles, Charles, your question is that yes, it can reduce the risk and the risk of transmission. However, it needs to be a properly fitted N95. Right. And the only thing I wanted to mention on this particular slide was that, you know, think about symptomatic versus asymptomatic. Our symptomatic patients are absolutely the biggest bucket possible of those that are going to be risky to us, but there has been some limited evidence that people that were asymptomatic are still shedding. So mm -hmm. for example, earlier this week, something came out about fecal transmission. Um, and so this can be present in, in fecal excrement. So we need to think about waste wow. disposal 
you know, it's, it's, it almost goes back to like C. diff and stuff like that, where we've sound, we found that that was aerosolized. Mm -hmm. um, and so, it, you know, good exhaust, good ventilation, making sure if you can work with the back doors open, you'll see some of the recommendations here in a second. It, we need to think very, very pragmatically about what we're doing to protect ourselves. Hmm, very interesting. I never, never could imagine that that would be another way of transmission. But. Yep. Um, so we'll go to the next slide. Uh, community spread, again, we're looking for sort of that unexplained transmission in a small area. Um, have these people been to the shopping mall together? Have they been on a school bus? All those things are from an epidemiology, uh, epidemiology standpoint. What are we doing to try to look at that risk? Um, and, and then how do we sort of mitigate that? Do we really need to cancel schools all the time? Do we really need to cancel public events? These are all things that will help us sort of tame the tide a little bit and, and stop transmission by eliminating that sort of community spread um, by social distancing. So this is something we've used for many years. It just is in today's times, it's sort of a huge social no-no. Um, but if, we've, if you, you know, watch the news at all, obviously there's many, many countries doing this, especially over in Europe where they've got sort of a massive problem um, with transmission in the community setting. Can you uh, touch a little bit on what's happening in Italy? I'm only getting a little bit of reports of that and trying to read as much as I can because I think that's a really, uh, I know that they're very highly populated areas that are really being hit the most, but I think from what I understand, their problem is that they're being overwhelmed by sick people that are needing ventilators. Is that accurate or do you know a little bit more about what's going on there and how we could limit the chance of that happening uh, here overseas? So, I mean, as, as it relates to medical equipment availability, I, I have not seen any factual reports that say that there's not enough ventilators. Right. Um, that, that certainly could become a problem, absolutely. And we've seen this when we had the SARS and the MERS issue. Um, and, and there are disposable ventilators that are now actually available, uh, especially here in the U.S., through the FEMA strategic stockpile. So there are resources that can be deployed, um, you know, tent hospital cities and stuff like that that are are sort of staged and ready to go. Um, in Europe, they are having this problem, especially in Italy and other places where they have a high proportion of their patients requiring ventilatory support and they're just, they just don't have enough rooms. And so, you know, if I'm a hospital CEO, I'm thinking about how can I flex my staff and my resources to, you know, change a med surge floor, for example, into a makeshift ICU if needed. Mm -hmm. Are there other care environments like long-term acute care hospitals that can help care for these patients as well? But that's sort of an evolving thing that I think we'll continue to see. I mean, we still don't have, as of right now, hospitals in the U.S. that are out of PPE. That certainly is going to be a risk. Um, but, the, you know, the feds are pretty good about buying stuff up. So there are things that can be deployed right. through requests through public health as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very interesting thing. And it's um, overwhelming a hospital is probably one of the most, could be one of the most dangerous things that happens here. And, uh, and not only with people that have COVID, but also everyone else that gets sick. It's not like everyone stops getting sick when a pandemic happens, right? Which is a scary thing as well, is that those people that are getting sick with other things that they have, um, they might not, might, might not be able to get the quick care that they might need in those situations because of how overwhelmed these hospitals get. Well, and imagine if this had happened in the fall. I mean, just, just imagine with our seasonal influenza transmission yeah. and sort of the late peak it's sort of a blessing that this didn't happen until January mm -hmm. um, because we'd really be in a, in a worse position um, for a lot of different reasons, for sure. Yeah. So All we right. can go on to the next slide. Sure. 
um, at-risk populations besides the ones that we talked about that have comorbidities, right? So older people, um, for sure, those that have chronic comorbidities, especially renal disease has been a high um, issue here. And then children and, and, and pregnant women are not being near as impacted at, by this, which is obviously good for them. And as a matter of fact, over in China, there's been several uh, infants that were born from pregnant mothers. Um, that, that had the COVID infection. And so they did not actually test positive for COVID infection. So that's a positive sign that there's no maternal transmission yeah. um, with this, especially since there's no actual uh, treatment that's been FDA approved yet. Great. So if we move to the next slide. Um, so now let's get into the recommendations, which is where we'll spend the last uh, time that we have together. So this has evolved over time. And so I want to make sure that I'm clear that these are current CDC recommendations. Um, WHO recommendations are almost identical to this. So if you're in another country, um, certainly, again, go back to your local or, or federal health authorities. But I think you'll find that these are pretty similar. Um, if we have a you know, continued issues with face masks where we don't have availability, then respiratory protection might be different. And so if we're doing a non-aerosol producing procedure, just our general patient contacts, the regular use of a face mask is going to be acceptable until the supply chain is restored. So what CDC is not saying is that we shouldn't be using proper respiratory precautions. What they're saying is that they understand that there's not enough. Um, and so they want to provide some protection that is better than none. Um, the use of things like our respiratory um, uh, um, protection, like uh, N95s, eye protection gown, and gloves, those are all still part of the regular recommendations. And if you can use an N95, then more power to you, go ahead and do that. But if we are using respiratory protection, it needs to be properly tested. So if I'm somebody with facial hair, then that, I'm going to be a poor candidate for some of this stuff, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that came out, which I'll share the link here in just a second, is that there are now registered disinfectants that have been deemed effective for us to use in the healthcare setting, um, specific for COVID-19. So that's, that's a huge win that we've got at least a list of things that we can buy commercially. Right. Um, this is just something I wanted to make sure we think about because we all sometimes have students. Um, we may have students or we have other persons that we interact with, but when we think about healthcare providers, especially if you're a volunteer, um, healthcare providers, as far as all the guidance that's coming out, is both paid and unpaid people that have exposure. And so, you know, I, I you know, live in a large metro area here in Atlanta, but outside of here, we have lots of volunteers. And so just because they're not paid doesn't mean that this is not an exposure risk to them and that if they're an agency, they still need to take the necessary steps to protect their workers and unfortunately take care of them if there were to be some type of unfortunate exposure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good, very good point. And then lastly, we'll go through these uh, quickly individually, but we can start with stopping the chances for exposure, making sure we have good uh, dispatch information. How can we adhere to standard precautions um, to make sure that we're mitigating risk to exposure? You know, what can we do um, if we are going inside of a facility? So especially if we're going in like a nursing home or something like that, they may now have visitor access control. Um, I was just in a nursing home yesterday that was completely off with their approach to this. And so we wanna ensure that we're thinking about what are their policies, how do we abide by those, and also what do we do that's completely rooted in evidence. And then lastly, there's a couple of things that we can do. We can make sure we keep sick people home. We can make sure that we have good, competent healthcare professionals in the pre-hospital setting. 
We can put in place things like engineering controls where we can cut on the fan. We can make sure we have fresh air. We can shut the window between the patient care compartment and the front of the, of the truck. We can look at disinfection. And more importantly, we can also work collaboratively with public health to ensure that we're following local guidance, but also reporting as needed. If we go to the next slide. Yeah, we have one question here for yeah. back to transmission. Is it would Tyvek be more protective or overkill? Why only a gallon recommendation right now? Awesome question. So uh, Tyvek is not really needed. So this is very, very different than the Ebola transmission that was bloodborne. So people have asked, you know, asked this a lot about, do I need to cover all my skin and things like that? Absolutely not. So think about this as sort of like a super influenza, right? That's a droplet precaution with the addition if we're doing aerosol generating procedures with respiratory protection in the form of airborne precautions. But there's really no indication at all for you to cover every inch of your skin. So I will talk in a second about the appropriate type of gown because I think that's a big risk for us. So many of the gowns that we carry on our trucks may not actually meet the criteria. Um, and so we'll talk a little bit about that. But no, there's no need to do a Tyvek suit. Um, the stuff that's on the news, especially when you see the pictures of the people in China, complete overreaction. So there's no need for us to do that unless we're going to have exposure to copious amounts um, of, of body secretions or something like that. So if patient was you know, vomiting or something like that, that might be a different story. But for general EMS care, there's really no indication for that. Gotcha. Okay, great. Um, before we get there, we want to make sure our dispatchers are asking the appropriate screening questions. That's so helpful for us so that we can understand what we're walking into and we can also put on the appropriate PPE before we ever get into the situation. So if we can walk in the door with that on, then we, we have a, a sort of a better chance to mitigate transmission to us. And we want to, again, look at those key symptoms, cough, right? Do they have any type of fever? Do they have any type of shortness of breath and a positive travel history? So that can all be done before we ever arrive on scene and relate to us en route. Next slide. Um, as far as protecting ourselves, if you're sick, stay home. Please stay home. This is something that we should always do. And I'm going to, you know, if there's any employers on the line, we also want to think about our responsibility as EMS leaders to make sure that we have good policies and procedures in place to encourage people to do the right thing. If we don't pay them to stay home when they're truly actual ill, then we're setting ourselves up for failure. Um, and especially if we have a quarantine, which I know several of our EMS colleagues in, in the sort of Seattle area are now subjected to a 14-day quarantine. And those are professionals. That's a workers' compensation issue. That's an employment, you know, occupational exposure issue where we need to take care of those folks to make sure that they can meet their financial obligations as well. So it's really a human resources, a human capital, and a common sense approach to look for sort of trends and make sure we're returning people to work as quickly as possible. Definitely. Next slide. Um, PPE recommendations. I'm not going to go through these any further because we've talked about this. But again, we're talking about standard precautions, an isolation gown or coverall, um, per, you know, hopefully a NIOSH-approved particulate respirator or a face mask if you don't have access to it, and then eye protection. And eye protection does not, I repeat, does not include your prescription glasses. So make sure it's a wraparound that's going to give you complete facial protection of your eyes. Um, because again, if we get the stuff in our mucosal membrane, this is an area where we have risk. Um, and there was a study that literally came out yesterday that looked at the ability for this uh, viral particle to survive in the air around three hours, and it can survive on surfaces they found for about three days. Um, and so this is something that we want to think about. Again, if I get it off my surface every single time with the disinfectant, I don't have that risk. 
But if I don't have proper air exchanges in the back of my unit and I don't sanitize and I don't get fresh air in there, then you might have potential risk for transmission that we can easily, easily prevent. Definitely. Next slide. Um, some other things that we can think about is putting on our PPE before we roll into the scene, making sure that we put a face mask on the patient if we can. Um, and, and if they you know, are on OT or something like that, um, we can put that face mask over, over the nasal cannula as an example. So again, as long as they can tolerate that, anything that we can do from an engineering control is going to help re reduce that risk. And PPE is, again, that last line of resort. Um, and if we're transporting somebody, then let's not take the whole family with us. Uh, we don't want to expose people unnecessarily, so send them in their private vehicle if, if possible, um, unless it's a child or something like that. Um, but we want to think, again, pragmatically through our approach. Next slide. Respiratory precautions, again, this has been changed. So we're moving away from an N95 if you don't have access to it, to a face mask. But for the love of God, don't buy something on Amazon. There are so many vendors right now that are promoting their you know, coronavirus face mask that are cloth and can be laundered and all these other things. These are not subject to the rigor of, of approval by government agencies. So there's really no efficacy that's known for these. And even if we use PPE, we wanna make sure we remove it appropriately, discard it appropriately, and then immediately practice hand hygiene um, as well. Now, if you're in the back of a truck, right after you take a patient out and you think there's been potential exposure, then you know, think about this question. Do you still wanna wear your N95 as you're cleaning the truck if it's right after? And the answer is, yeah, you, you definitely do. You want to make sure that you have had a complete ventilatory sort of resurgence um, of fresh air into that unit. So the easiest way is to open all the doors, run the fan, um, certainly put the air conditioning on, and you can use, obviously, an air sanitizing spray if you have access to that as well. Next slide. Um, we've talked about respiratory usage. We want to make sure that patients uh, can get into an airborne isolation room if we can. So if we're picking up somebody from an outpatient healthcare setting, this is not a good place for them to be. They don't have these capabilities. We want to make sure that when we bring patients out of a facility, that they're also masked as well. Um, and then again, it needs to be something that's fit tested. So make, make sure it's fit tested. Aerosol producing procedures is something that was new. So as we were talking about, we need more specific EMS guidance, and this is one I have to give the CDC props for because they thought about this and said, hey, what about these people in the back of a truck that are doing things that are pretty risky, like giving a NEB treatment or something like that? So we can always go back to that N95 respirator, um, and that is the preferred standard for this. As a matter of fact, there's public health guidance out there globally that says N95 respirator masks should be prioritized to us if we're doing these types of procedures. So if you're in the back of a truck and you have a choice, and you have a choice between an N95 and a regular surgical mask, and let's say that the patient is not actively coughing up a lung or anything like that, you're not doing anything aerosol producing, I'm gonna go for the surgical mask to you know, sort of preserve my availability of those N95 because they are disposable. Um, and think about also CPAP and some of the other things that we might be doing in the back of a truck that might produce some type of aerosol. So if we're going to do this, open the back of the truck, especially if we can stay on scene for a little while um, and go ahead and do that NEB treatment, get the risky part of our sort of equation of care over with where we have good ventilation and then the rest of the stuff that we can do um, in route. Good. 
Uh, we could move through this. I think we've talked about that because I want to finish up with some of the other important things and then see what questions we have. Eye protection is, again, something we really are bad at in EMS. Um, you know, I always, always, always have my safety glasses ready to go. Mine happen to also be ballistic. Um, and so there's lots of different ways that you can do this, but you want to make sure you protect your eyes from sharps hazards, um, from people throwing stuff at you, but as well as infectious particles. And so when you're doing reusable eye protection, a lot of um, EMS units have goggles on them. Those can be reused. And so you just want to make sure you wipe those down with an EPA registered disinfectant prior to reuse. Next slide. And then finally, as far as transport recommendations, make sure you tell the receiving facility what you got coming in. This is huge so that they can have the necessary steps. So yesterday, this patient I was referring to, I got the last negative pressure room in the whole hospital. Um, and, and luckily I called ahead and they held it for me because there were two other units coming behind us that had sort of a similar type of presentation and they had to be diverted. So this is something that we wanna be very, very cautious with. We wanna make sure we explain this stuff to family members. Um, so if they are riding, they should also wear a face mask. Your driver should be wearing a face mask as well. And again, we wanna to try to minimize any transmission between the patient care compartment and the front. So if you've got a window or something that can be sealed, go ahead and close that. Make sure the air's going, those types of things so that we can help minimize that recirculating negative air. Definitely. Yeah. And then environmental infection control, I promised to hit on this before we wrap up. So there is a list and that link is there at the bottom. If you go to that link, you can actually see which commercially available products are effective against COVID-19. Um, you will find an extensive list. So I can guarantee you that something that you have access to is on that list, um, regardless of where you are. But for example, you know, picking on Clorox, Clorox is obviously a large brand, but they have many different formulations. And so you wanna make sure that what you're using in the pre-hospital environment is actually the specific product that's been uh, deemed effective against COVID-19. So if you don't have one of those, I would recommend that you switch to that. Um, and that would be something that again, should be a continual process, not just something that we do for right now. So yeah, Joe's just asking, you mentioned that some gowns may not be up to standards. Yep. Yeah, and so is there a particular thing that we need to look for that confirms that it is up to standard that we can use it? Yeah, so if you look at the CDC guidance, they've actually published um, some of that information uh, related to that. So there's different levels of gown from level one to level four. A level one or a level two gown should be fine. What you're gonna find though, is that most gowns that are being sold into healthcare, if you don't ask the questions, are not ANSI rated gowns. Hmm. So the question to ask your distributor is what ANSI rating, A-N-S-I rating, is this gown? If they say it's not rated, then you have a problem. If it is rated as a one or a two, that should be pretty okay. And what we're really looking for is splash protection, sort of that strike through right. effect um, yeah. since we're dealing with res respiratory secretion. So make sure your gown's rated. If it is, you're pretty good to go. If it's not, you want to switch. Gotcha. Perfect. Um, and then it looks like we're going to finish up with hand hygiene. And I see a couple of questions also, but hand hygiene can be done with our regular alcohol-based hand sanitizer. Um, we want to make sure that it's got an alcohol content between 60 and 90%. So if you're looking at some of the commercial solutions, a lot of them are moving to 70%, so we can check that box. But it also needs to be ethyl alcohol. So there's ethyl alcohol and there's isopropyl alcohol. Isopropyl is, you know, like our regular rubbing alcohol. It's great, but it's not very effective against viruses. And it also is extremely drying to our skin. 
The advantage of ethyl alcohol in this situation is that it's highly effective against viruses, but it also doesn't have those sort of drying effects to the human skin. So this is something to think about. And then of course, if your hands got stuff on them, right? If they've got, you know, visibly soiled hands, you need to make sure you use soap and water. And proper step to use PPE. I've included um, a great poster as well as a web link that he'll send out and post in the portal that's got videos that you can actually customize based on the specific brand that you use. So we want to make sure we're putting our PPE on appropriately and we're also removing it appropriately and not throwing it against our partner. I, see, I saw that a lot with Ebola where people were popping gloves off as if it was a rubber band. And so it's really critical to make sure that we're protecting ourselves as well as those around us when we're properly uh, using PPE. Right. This is another reference chart that I wanted to include for purposes of air exchanges. So if you don't know the answer to this question, you can normally ask your vehicle's mechanics, um, or you can also look in the manufacturer's sort of warranty information to know how quickly and how many air exchanges per hour it takes to clear out your truck. So this is something to do. You can obviously, of course, open the doors, which will help expedite this as well. But you should have some type of policy in place that says how quickly your truck um, will be clear of any potential airborne precautions. Oh, interesting. Good. Um, are you okay with us um, handing out the PowerPoint so people can get a better look at this? Absolutely. Yep. And it looks like we also just got a question on gowns and it says it's been difficult to purchase them lately. If we run out of the proper gowns, what's an alternative? Um, so depending upon where you are, I don't know, Darren, if you're in the U S or not, um, is, if you yeah. are, I'm sorry. He is in the U S. Yeah. Yeah. So you can actually contact local public health and actually tell them that you have a need specifically for those uh, PPE and they can actually release them from the strategic stockpile. So that's something that you'd have to coordinate with your local and state public health. Um, but we are prioritizing, again, emergency responders and healthcare facilities. Now, if you're a dentist office, you're going to be very low on the list, right? But an EMS professional that's responding actively to calls throughout the day is going to be very high on the list. And so mm -hmm. that's an option to do. Um, you, you know, you have to use what you have. Um, so if you don't have access to something like that, then you might have to um, look at some type of dispatch criteria where you only send certain trucks to certain things based on the symptomology of the patient. Um, or also talk to the hospital if you're filled with the hospital and ask them if there's anything that they can do to help you, um, at least temporarily. But there are, there are some reusable gowns that you can get out there that can be laundered. Um, they're pretty expensive and they're not very easy to find, but that would be another potential alternative if absolutely necessary. Good. Um, and then the last thing is, is really looking at the hierarchy, right? And PPE, as you see at the very bottom, is the least effective. So when we use PPE, we should say, oh, no, we're already at the sort of least effective thing versus saying, how do we eliminate that harm? How do we substitute it for something else? Or what can we do from an engineering control to get to a better place? And competency, we've talked about making sure we have something that's role specific, but also that we are also going to ensure that we have the appropriately fitted uh, piece of equipment. So that's a recommendation that came out as well. And treatment, this is something that comes up all the time right now. Is there something that I can be treated with? There is an investigational drug that is doing extremely well. Um, and this is something that is being fast-tracked through FDA. The other thing that's come out too is that if we use corticosteroids with these patients, it actually prolongs viral replication. So this is something from a treatment standpoint. We know we don't really 
you know, pumping these people full of steroids because it can cause all kinds of issues, particularly with this particular COVID infection. So that's something that a lot of prescribers are not aware of. Yeah, it's interesting because that was something that uh, our protocols are saying that we're avoiding corticosteroids for this particular thing, but it's exactly. new. they were just figuring this out recently. Yep. Yep. And then a couple of things I want to leave you with um, employer responsibilities, right? As an EMS leader or as an EMS employer, we have the responsibility to protect our crews, to make sure they have the tools and equipment. We might have to scale back things that we do if we don't have that. Um, and we also want to ensure that our staff are appropriately trained and resourced. So we don't want to send someone out that has not been fit tested as an example in one of these calls. We wanna make sure that we have containment strategies to ensure that we can you know, recirculate the truck um, and so it can go back into service. These are all things that are gonna help us maintain the continuity of care, um, as well as our obligation to the communities that we serve. So just something to think about. And I think there's only one or two other slides. Uh, I have a question here yeah. on Slack, and we've covered it a little bit, but we'll just kind of reiterate this. So once you have presented with the symptoms, how long do you stay in isolation for? And this is, it really depends on your area. Uh, as far as oil field, I believe that's where Lisa is. And um, as far as that, uh, that question, um, it's, it really depends on what your employer and what your agency is actually recommending at this particular point. Um, a lot of people are recommending 14 days and that seems kind of like the mainstay. Are you seeing anything different there? No, I mean, again, it, it does, like you said, go down to local agency protocol and honestly, public health guidance. You know, theoretically, if you are exposed and you're fully wearing your PPE, there should honestly be very minimal risk to you. Um, right. and, and I think we need to think further down the line to say, okay, if we isolate public safety, what in the world are we going to do when we have, you know, two calls today and they get isolated yeah. for 14 days and now 14 people from our crew, I mean, that could take out an entire shift of an entire organization. Oh, um, easy. And, and yeah. So I, I really am not in favor of that generalized quarantine process. And again, if we're, you know, getting good information from dispatch, we're approaching the, uh, approaching the patient uh, appropriately, then we've got a really good chance of being able to stay in service and not having any risk for ourselves or our family members. And, and that's what we really need to focus on. Right. Um, and then as we sort of finish up, again, use common sense. Don't, don't, don't listen to the media. Don't go out and buy, you know, additional toilet paper. Um, make sure we're doing things that are going to protect our, you know, ourselves as well as our family. Work with your dispatchers to make sure that you've got that pre-scanning. If you're not getting that information right now, you need to make sure and demand that you get it. And then focus on basic stuff that we should be doing, right? How do we prevent the organism from the first place? What can we do from a hand hygiene standpoint, making sure we have good soap and water and alcohol-based hand rubs, appropriate use of PPE, right? Based on the type of procedure that we're doing, keeping the truck clean and disinfected. And then again, what do we do to move this needle forward so that as we focus on something else of the future, we're not caught off guard. This is always a test for the next one. Yeah. Um, and, and in EMS, we have such a unique opportunity to interact with the public. We want to make sure we're sort of balancing what we need to do and what we must do. Um, and that's, that's really important. I think so too. And I think education is really, really key here in making sure that not only your cells are not overreacting to some of the media, but it's also a, a important point to kind of give the real facts as a medical professional to the public uh, when you're interacting with them as well. Definitely. And I've included my contact information. Um, on, this is just, again, a reminder of going to your local public health authorities. And on the final slide um, is my email address. If you have any specific questions related to your agency um, that you want some guidance on, um, I've also included the references as well. Um, you know, this is a topic that's not going away. It's going to get worse before it gets better. 
but it also gives us yet another opportunity to show our unique skill set in the public and make sure that we're being very, very practical in what we do and also encouraging more communication between us and our hospital colleagues so that we can have the appropriate resources to protect ourselves as EMS healthcare professionals, but also protecting the patient once they arrive in the emergency department. Perfect. And if you have any questions, uh, please feel free to, to put them in the comments now and we'll kind of open this up for people to, to get those questions answered. And, um, and as far as what people need to know as, uh, when it comes to EMS. And so if you have any questions, please feel free to put those in the comments. Um, and, uh, and we'll definitely get those answered for you. I don't know if I have any, I think I answered mine through as well. And it's, it's great to have someone that uh, like yourself, that's able to come on and have such a knowledge with this. And even just for the employers as well, there were some great uh, links that, uh, and stuff that is going to be part of this. So I'm going to make sure this is public. It's not going to be just for, uh, for members, obviously. And so we'll make sure we have the appropriate links for how to obtain certain things and, and some guidelines as well as, um, the standard PowerPoint so that way they can click on the links and get factual information that's useful for EMT practitioners. So um, don't feel like this is going away. If you missed it uh, live, that's okay. It will be available to you with the other resources after the fact as well. I don't see any questions on Facebook yet. I don't see any on Zoom yet. I'll give everyone another 30 seconds to kind of pop in there their question and then we'll kind of sign off and again if you have any questions um dr hudson garrett is actually inside our mastery medics facebook group he's an active member of that and so if you do have questions i'm sure that if you put a comment on uh, either this video or the subsequent uh, links that we're going to be posting i'm sure he'll be happy to answer them there as well if need be definitely and i also want to say thank you to everybody that took the time to get on but also thank you for the exposure that you go through every day. I think this is something that's a needed topic, but it also, again, makes us remind ourselves of sort of the sobering reality of the exposures that we have daily. Absolutely. And we're, it's true that we, as us as paramedics and, and forefront, um, our first responders are going to be more and more exposed to this. And so also another thing too, is that um, police officers, firefighters, someone that's not in the medical field, if you're not, if they are separated, it's, this is knowledge that you should be, giving them as well. And so that way they're aware, because this is something that they're probably going to ask you questions about. You're, you are the medical professional. They're going to seek information and this would be something that you could pass along to them as well. Feel free to share this to anyone that might need it as well. Um, this is all factual cited information that Dr. Hudson Garrett got for us. And, and so we definitely appreciate that. And so that way we, we know that we're getting the right information uh, that's per pertinent to EMS. So thank you so much for doing that. And thank you everyone for, uh, for being brave through this whole situation and, and getting the information and, and being ready to take this on and, and help people in their, their time of need right now. Sounds perfect. All right. Well, I think um, the Charles has one last, is there sputum production in COVID? Uh, I think we kind of covered that earlier on and said that there was a, a limit to sputum production. It was more of a dry, uh, a dry cough and dry production there, correct? Yep, definitely. And, and again, you know, this is something that just as we would always do, if we've got somebody with secretions, we want to have suction ready. Yeah. Um, and, and, and just think about, I mean, the good news about this is honestly, there's very, very little change with what we should always be doing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's something I want to highlight and again, end with to make sure we wrap our brains around this, that we're not asking you to do a lot of stuff different. We're simply asking you to be a little bit more aware, 
ask better questions and go beyond that travel history to look at sort of that overall differential diagnosis and then take the steps appropriate. Yeah, perfect. Um, Nicholas is asking, how should we be handling the lack of PPE? We just covered that a, a few minutes ago. You might've just missed it. Uh, but, um, you will post those links. Um, Hudson and I will work together to kind of get those links that you guys need in order to, um, for the, you know, the information that you need in order to get PPE. Uh, but if you're a frontline worker and you're, you're in lack of it, I think the answer we kind of talked about, if you're, you just kind of have to use the best stuff for that particular moment, I guess is the best answer for that. Um, it's, that's something that you're gonna have to take up with your, uh, your employer and just give them the, the resources that we'll provide after this class. Yeah, and I just posted the link uh, for those that are in the US to the CDC risk management strategy for sort of rationing, I call it a PPE. So yeah. it sort of goes through an overview. And then of course, you can work with your local public health authorities there, there is PPE available. And I will say that the federal government has commissioned essentially the production um, of more PPE. So they're right now we're okay. Um, that could certainly change at any point. But right now we've got lots of resources that we can pull from if, if absolutely needed. Perfect. All righty. Well, I think that's all the questions. I'm just answering one that was not pertaining to the actual uh, class itself. But uh, other than that, thank you again so much for coming on with us and having another discussion uh, about this um, this case. And I know that it's it's going to, like you said, it's going to get worse before it gets better. But um, the best protection that we truly can have is the right information. I think that is key to making sure that we don't kind of lose our heads with this. So thank you again for giving us a level-headed approach and cited information so that way we can be feel confident that we're getting the right information here.